Welcome to the Finer Girls Podcast, where we would like to unsubscribe from dreams forever. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Finer Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. In real life, the Final Girls put on events and screenings that explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. And on this show, I take a particular horror trope and explore it to bits. Which basically means that I invite very smart, very funny women and non-binary folks to talk about horror movies in depth and tie them into the particular trope or theme that we're exploring. Now in the fourth series of the podcast, we're looking at teen horror its evolution, why teenagers make such compelling protagonists for horror films and horror-adjacent films, how some of them have aged, and what they really tell us about how teenagers exist in the world. Before we dive into our film this week, a quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Final Ghost UK for updates, event announcements, a whole lot of horror memes and TikToks. We also have a Patreon where you can support our work, get occasional bonus episodes, and it's absolutely fine if you don't want to join it. We really, really would appreciate though if you could take the time to leave us a little rating, a little review on Apple Podcasts. It really genuinely helps people discover the show and it makes me feel good. So thank you very much. In today's episode, we're actually looking at the horror film that started it all off for me. The source of so many nightmares and the start of a gruesome and campy franchise, as well as the birth of one of the greatest screen villains. I'm talking, of course, about Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Joining me on this episode is the film critic, author, scholar, and founding member of the Manchester Centre for Gothic Studies, Dr. Sirka Neeline. And if you've somehow arrived to this episode without having ever seen a Nightmare on Elm Street film, and specifically the first one, the one that kicked everything off, I beg you, please remedy this immediately. The film definitely holds up. It's just as creepy, gory, and visually inventive in 2021 as it was in 1984 when it was released. I think it's still, from the moment I first saw it when I was nine years old to today, still one of my most cherished horror films ever. And with all of that said, I hope you enjoy our take on A Nightmare on Elm Street. Essentially, um, Tina tells the story of having this nightmare with her friends, her boyfriend and um, her boyfriend Rod, her friends Nancy, and um, they they discuss this kind of horrible shared dream that they're having being pursued by this Anyway, they get together, have a sleepover, and Tina is uh, horrifically dispatched in the film. Um, so Nancy takes it upon herself alongside Glenn, her boyfriend, and Rod, essentially to try and solve this mystery. And one by one, they get essentially unpicked, they get picked off, dispatched, um, all the while the parents of Elm Street 
deny that anything's really happening. This spectral killer couldn't possibly be responsible for it. And it's all about how our heroine Nancy really rises to the challenge to confront um, the awful, gruesome spectre that is Freddy Krueger. Of course, it spawned a lot of sequels as well that go in various directions. But uh, it is a classic of 1980s American horror cinema, mm. without question. And also a classic of teen horror in particular, which is the subgenre that I'm exploring in this season of the podcast. Mm -hmm. So are you a fan of teen horror films in general? And how do you think this one fits into that? Or I guess really it helped establish a lot of that. I'm a massive fan of teen horror films. I mean, not only from the fact that I grew up around the time these films really hit their kind of pinnacle in the 1990s, um, certainly I'm thinking of the kind of postmodern later ones, but I think this film is absolutely a crucial linchpin actually in linking the earlier slasher films of the late 70s, early 80s, and then bringing it into uh, that staple of video store horror nostalgia we have from the late 1990s. This film is a linchpin for that because we have incredibly strong female characters, especially Heather Lagenkamp's um, portrayal of Nancy. We show that ingenuity, which is all hinted at in earlier slashers, it must be said, but she is, I think, a true crystallization of that ingenious, smart, really, really gritty final girl. And I think that that's something that really contributes to that sense of teen horror, that teens are not there simply to be disposed of and killed, although that does happen quite a bit in these films. <laughs> there are definitely heroines that we can really admire. And I've always thought that um, Nancy was a particularly admirable heroine in, these, uh, in, the, in this film. So um, it, it's a really important one, I must say. And and you mentioned that I think quite rightly that this is the essentially the film that links the slashers of the 70s that we've talked about on this podcast as well, you know, both Halloween and, you know, Black Christmas will come down the line here, but that obviously predated Halloween and also Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, Friday the 13th, a lot of these, but this really does feel both gorier, a bit more self-aware and doing something very, very specific. And we'll come to, to Nancy in detail a bit later, but sure. where where is it in the spectrum of horror kind of at this point in time in 1984 when it comes out? So um, we have, as you say, you know, we have had those earlier slasher films, the proto ones, the ones that kind of informed Bob Clark's film and um, Texas Chainsaw and all that. And then by the time we get to the late 1970s, we have the surprising polish of, of obviously um, Halloween. And then we get the Savini gore that's so celebrated mm -hmm. in things like Friday the 13th. But, you know, we get into sort of slasher hell at that point as well, insofar as there's a lot of them and they're quite repetitive in some respects. So then there's a formula, should, yeah. There's a formula. It's a very pleasurable formula. I am in no way dissing the formula. The formula is incredibly pleasurable to watch. But by the time we get to 84, you get this sense of slight exhaustion. I mean, another slasher film. Okay, I kind of know how these are going to run, mm -hmm. even, even as you're consuming them in the early 80s. So what Elm Street does is it introduces a, a, a great level of polish to the to the slasher film i mean if you watch the film considering how limited the budget was mm -hmm. the amount of polish and finesse that's given to it is is quite extraordinary effects that were achieved really really cheaply but had this kind of nightmarish quality that we could all relate to, no matter how old you were, but especially if you were a teenager, that burgeoning sort of sense of your own identity and your own sexuality and breaking away from your parents' influence and all that. So this film really kind of articulates that. The kids are not away in some country cabin somewhere or at Camp Crystal Lake. They're at home and that's the frightening. You're in your own bed. You should be in the most safe place 
in the whole world to you. Exactly. And yet it is absolutely the most terrifying place. And that's the genius of West Craven, to be fair. That is the genius of this story. Um, and that coupled with the kind of polish, the terrifying sense that we are all incredibly vulnerable, have to be vulnerable to sleep. I think that this is all contributing to the idea that um, slashers can still be scary. You just, I mean, you could just opt out and say, I'm never going to go to Camp Crystal Lake and I'm mm-hmm. Jason will never get me. But again, with someone like Freddie, it's absolutely guaranteed if you are on his target list, you are going to be, uh, you're going to grapple with him one way or the other. And that's what I love about these films um, because it's all interior. It's all about fright- the frightening elements of, uh, of the mind and, and the damage that can be done from parents as well. It really feels like a perfect um, combination of some of the most terrifying ideas that are present in these kind of very influential slashers. So you've got kind of the 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 legacy or the damage that parents can can inflict on their children from Friday the Thirteenth, which you know, justice for Pamela Voorhees, she was the the original <laughs> killer. It's all about her. It's not about Jason. That's um, true. And, and also <laughs> the the relentless stalking, which I think is the scariest part of Halloween. You know, the kills yes. themselves are quite slick and and you know not bloodless quite, but still not as violent and say this as the subsequent films would become. But and then in in Friday the Thirteenth, it's all about the gore. It's all about the close ups on the kills. And here it's this relentlessness because Freddy will literally haunt and hunt you down in your dreams. There is no escape, and he will not stop. And has kind of these supernatural, dreamy, nightmarish powers that make him a supernatural being. So there's very little you can use to fight him with. And and at the same time, it's all the damage and the 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 choices of the parents that have come back to haunt the kids, as we'll discuss mm-hmm. as well. And also just this this gore that because it is very clearly a a supernatural film, it's not a real life killer. It can afford to be so explosive and visually fascinating with its skills, just completely over the top, you know, from the bed that swallows, <laughs> um, that swallows Glenn Hole and his TV to these, this fountain of blood that comes out of it. Like it goes completely OTT. So the images, I feel like they're, they're very, um, they're very dreamlike, and I think that's a power of them because it's it does not really rely on being realistic. It can allow itself by the sheer the benefit of its premises that it can allow itself to go very, very bombastic in its gore. Absolutely, I mean, and this is the power of what they decided to do in the film. I think one of the most innovative one of the smartest things that Craven had decided to do was not to foreground to us as the audience that we are in a dream. So for the we are in a, set, a sequence or a set where we don't recognize we're in a dream straight away. And then slowly but surely, the nightmarish instances, whether Freddy mm. pops out from different things or he is fused with different uh, different spaces or ideas, you know, the fact that he comes out, I'm thinking of even the telephone, the idea of the tongue coming out. I'm sure we'll get to that at the end. You know, it's all about the idea of not being signaled as an audience member that we're in the dream place. So therefore it shows that there's an unpredictability in this film. It feels frightening because we can't mm. tell this is a dream, this isn't. It's only when our protagonists usually yell out, I can't believe this is a dream or is this a dream? Am I alive? Kind of thing that we get that sense of um, understanding that the rules have changed on screen. Um, whereas they have the realism of something like Halloween, for instance, where we know to watch for certain places and spaces where Michael may pop up. With Freddie, because 
we don't the mise-en-scene itself is so open to interpretation and we don't know the limits of it he freddie can pop up anywhere and that is that is absolutely brilliant in terms of its construction mm -hmm. because then we feel completely vulnerable watching mm -hmm. the film because it's uncontrollable so let's talk a little bit about the teens, which when rewatching the film earlier today, I was really struck by how, you know, not innocent they are, but also how open they are in the conversations with themselves and how much we really see of them and their relationships with each other, how vulnerable they are with each other as well a lot of the times, especially because the film kicks off with Tina and Tina's death. Um, so what do you make of the of the teenagers of Elm Street and how they relate to each other and how they deal with with the events and and the grief of losing of being kind of essentially killed off one by one i think that they have a lovely relationship in terms of the four teens themselves they have uh, they have an intimacy and there's definitely the vulnerability you're talking about you can definitely mm. see that every one of them is fragile in their own particular way probably the least of whom would be so be nancy but mm -hmm. um we see us with tina in particular you know with the a clearly fractured relationship with her mother and, and, and the mother's boyfriend who kind of stands in the background but looks completely out of place uh, in terms of the, the family construct. Mm -hmm. The fragility of people like Rod, for instance. Rod is a very um, anxious, um, I think very insecure man. And I think this is very, very evident in their, in their relationship, Tina and Rod's relationship. You can see that they're mm -hmm. both trying to emulate something positive mm -hmm. or in their relationship, but it doesn't necessarily convince. And that's what makes it quite sad. You feel that they're trying to win approval of people that they can never get the approval of. Mm -hmm. um, so together they have this obviously quite, um, when I say graphic, I don't mean that in a bad way, but rather, you know, they're obviously having a sexual relationship. They're obviously having a relationship that is on the cusp of adulthood. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, it, it, I don't get the feeling that either of them are particularly fulfilled. They're just, they're quite sad in their own way. So when Tina gets picked off, in mm -hmm. in one of the most brutal deaths, I have to say, um, you just don't expect the brutality of it. And I think it's because it is so nightmarish, the mm -hmm. idea that she is, pardon the pun, but she, the fact that she literally gets dragged up the wall, gets pulled yeah. across the ceiling, gets slashed, gets repeatedly mm -hmm. slashed. It's, um, it's graphic, but it's also really, really disorientating. It's upsetting. Um, mm -hmm. And you can see that rod is this is the moment where you know, he was yeah yeah powerless he's supposed to be the man who's able to protect and react and you can mm -hmm. see that he is just completely uh, you know it rendered inert in that moment um it, it's horrifying I think, I mean, definitely remember just on a personal level, and I've, I've rewatched mm -hmm. this film many, many times over the years, but as not in a, in a few years now, and as I, re, as I was rewatching it, I was thinking of myself, kind of aged eight or nine, and the image that watching this scene for the first yeah, time. I'm trying to think, how did you and, process that at eight or nine? Wow. I remember yeah. the, the part that really struck me was the image of, of Tina's body wrapped up in plastic being dragged across the hall and kind of disappearing, being dragged oh, by this yeah. invisible force. I still so vividly remember that, even before actually remembered the film that I had watched that it was from but when I was watching the scene it really struck me because you get so much of Raw just watching this completely powerless and even now it really strikes me as so violent but part of the violence is not 
even the gore, which is there and it's really aggressive, but it's the fact that this this other character is there, he's bearing witness, and there's nothing he can do, which means the and there's nothing that Tina can do. It's completely like all you're doing is watching this girl being murdered, and there's absolutely no way to fight it because there's nothing to fight. You can't see anything. It's just her body clearly being, you know lunged around by an invisible force that is fucking terrifying because it could be anything absolutely and especially when you see i mean again as you say it's not that it's it is very graphic but at the same time you see these scratch marks come on her skin and Mm -hmm. stuff by an invisible force and that is terrifying i remember when i was looking at it again recently it's so so clever in Mm -hmm. terms of the way that the scene orientates it as an over the show there's a slight over the shoulder of Mm -hmm. from rod's position just to kind of a disorientate you further but also to give you that sense of his powerlessness he is completely unable to act to this um in response to this it's horrifying because you just what can you do it's uh, and how can you help her and she is so clearly fighting for her life thrashing around being dragged across that ceiling Mm. it's um it's it's really even thinking about it still kind of it it brings up huge amount of empathy but real genuine horror in the moment Mm -hmm. and also because it sets essentially tells us that rod is not in fact the killer while it would be very easy to go down the route it's like well the boyfriend did it but here we very have very clear um kind of information that it wasn't him but also it really sets us on the side of the teenagers I think because as they're grieving especially Nancy and their parents are you know Nancy's dad is the sheriff of the town they they're involved in essentially all things that Rod did it so they want to apprehend him as as quickly as possible so it really pits them against one another because it's Nancy and Glenn trying to both try to understand Tina's murder and potentially who did it, but also save their friend from from being in jail for something that he did not do. And kind of this this very teenage self of my parents don't get me, the adults don't get me, is essentially recreated via supernatural murder mystery in a way. And so what do you think kind of is the the role of the of the parents in this film, especially by how they react to to Tina's murder, which is kind of the catalyst of this, the whole story. You get a couple of things going on there. I mean, certainly the parents of Elm Street are the disbelieving people and they are mm. representative of the community on large. So you have um, Nancy's father, who's a police officer, uh, sorry, police detective. Um, you have um, Nancy's mother, who sort of acts as this sort of... Um, social voice this voice is sort of everything will be okay if we just repress all of our feelings and drink a bottle of vodka which she is constantly swinging from in the film um what you find is is that parents are either disconnected from their teens or they try and control their teens as best they can but mm-hmm. they're it, it's always with this idea of ignoring what the teen is actually saying so nancy is saying can't sleep i can't do this and that and the mother is just determined to you will live your life the way I tell you to you will do it as I tell you to because that's the only way I know how to cope with this uncontrollable kind of force Mm -hmm. that you claim is coming out to kill you Nancy's father you can understand is 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 more about trying to get to the the nub of the truth and that in his mind can only mean that Rod has killed Tina Mm -hmm. so the reaction is of course what you would expect from any kind of 80s teen parents the doubling down effect is sort of the idea of cut out your nonsense this is the only way that we know how to control society on large however i would say that it's what i always thought was interesting with swim was that you don't really get tina's mother come back in after tina's disappeared which i thought Mm -hmm. was 
was interesting because I kind of wanted to see that sense of, I don't know, brokenness all the more. But it just mm. it struck me that that family was beyond repair. At least this is what Craven tries to set up early in the film. Parents of Am Street are so guilty in so many ways of, mm-hmm. of, uh, of sin in their own right that I think the teens as much as they're trying to uncover why Freddie is what he is and how he's affecting them and what they can do about him, the parents are another obstacle. They are there well-meaning and all the rest of it, but they are another obstacle that the kids have to overcome. And sometimes mm-hmm. they just can't. You know? Yeah, and I think guilt is a is a major theme in here um, because both, I think Nancy feels guilty about Tina's death in a way. Um, I think Rod definitely feels guilty about not being able to help her in that moment. Yeah. Glenn, to be honest, is a very basic character. He just, <laughs> yes. he just, he, there is zero, zero brainwaves, just vibes. No. Glenn doesn't yeah. really think that much. He's just watching his little movies without actually the sound on and listening to records at the same time. He, I think it was Miss America he was watching or something. I make yeah. memories of Miss America. Yeah. So, um, yes, he's all about the visuals and the aesthetics, bless. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Bless his little card. He's a, he's a little himbo. Good for him. And he yeah. can't really do much, but, you know, he's nice to look at. <laughs> That's true. And the little cut off top is a particularly nice <laughs> touch, I have to say. It's, it's quite sweet, really. Yeah. Um, but... I wanted to to kind of focus a, a bit on Nancy because I think there's something you mentioned at the beginning of our chat that's very accurate. It's like that she is truly a very different type of final girl. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I think she has a lot of those elements that are kind of quite characteristic of the final girl. You know, she's presented of kind of more virginal as opposed to Tina, who's very um, who's sexually active and also very loud about it in yes. the film, <laughs> which I think is actually the first time that we actually hear um, teenagers have sex but we don't see them we see them through kind of their friends reactions which i which i completely disremembered about the film and i thought was very very funny i um, love glenn's reaction to it where he's like yeah. oh man and he just puts the, 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 the cushion <laughs> over his face he's like oh for god's sake and you know it's completely out of envy it's not the noise yeah. it's the envy yeah. of which my girlfriend would do that with me yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but then she she's also interesting because whereas I think um, Laurie Strode and and Sally and and other kind of final girls that we've talked about so far in the seventies, they kind of react to the situation. They're not really picked because of who they are. They're just mm-hmm. kind of in the way and they survive and they end up becoming important to the story. But them becoming the final goal is sort of accidental. But I do think that this one, there's an element of Nancy literally going after Freddy, trying to figure out how to beat him, being like figuring out who he is, how she can confront him. And also the fact that perhaps she was targeted in a way because of what her parents do. It's not, I don't think, I didn't get the sense that the, the murders that Freddy commits in this film are arbitrary. Like he is going after the children of the parents who murdered him. Yes, we. I mean, we don't have, know of at least in this film, we don't know of any other children on Elm Street per se. These are, and and again, even at that, this group of friends that we are kind of on the journey with, they are the four that are targeted. Mm-hmm. That's their shared dream of, their shared dream of Freddie proves that in some way that's the thing that links them together i know other nightmare on elm street films try and explain this way in various different ways but Mm. in this one we kind of understand it's implicitly implied this they're they're bound together by their shared dream of freddie and freddie is certainly through that targeting them individually in quite horrible ways what i think is quite interesting about that though is that 
we don't get the full backstory. It's nice to it, it's it's hinted at that we know that the parents of Elm Street have committed you know this 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 crime in which essentially Freddie was um you know um basically on a technicality was freed from his mm-hmm. uh from his trial uh mm-hmm. and the, and and as for child murder and as such then uh, they took retribution and, and burned him alive mm-hmm. we don't know who the participants of that were with the exception of course of nancy's mother mm-hmm. nancy's mother has also really macabrely kept the knives and put them in the boiler in the in your yeah. house why would I mean, you do th- that that's <laughs> kind of what made me think is Freddie tar- and it, this was the first time that I was kind of thinking about it as we watched the film. Is Freddie targeting her or sort of toying with Nancy more because his glove is in her house? I genuinely don't know. I just thought it proved what I really think it did in the film is mm. it proved that Marge is very, very guilty and she is literally mm-hmm. trying to drink away her guilt. Oh, yeah. Um, dr- literally drowning her guilt out. Mm-hmm. But as such, that also re- uh, incapacitates her, I suspect, not only from having dreams about Freddie, but also it incapacitates her in any way to fight back because the only way you can fight back is by acknowledging the wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly what Nancy does. Nancy doesn't apologize for it. Nancy just she confronts the fact that this uh, yeah. this spectre has come into their lives what i would say is is that um the parents uh, of elm street are in, in in various ways show the culpability of an entire generation mm-hmm. in with you know against the sort of wrongful violence of the past wrongful exploitation of kids in the past and this is something that they do through community or through law enforcement or through national politics if you think about reaganism i think all of this is um it's looking at the idea of the children of the future are Mm -hmm. there to uh to fight battles that the parents don't want to fight or cannot fight and they will not Mm -hmm. address through their own guilt but you're so right essentially because she's got that glove in the basement i mean it gives us that short hand to think she was definitely involved the level of her involvement is obviously massive but how the other parents of Anne street whether they acquiesced and just went along with it or whether they were there equally as angry and and, and contributing to it it doesn't matter because the future is always we only understand the future through the fact that we have a next generation mm-hmm. the next generation represent the future and as such by killing them off, it's it's bringing an end to that ideal that is sort of 80s suburban America and Elm Street when all the things that it stands in for. So Freddy is about curtailing any hope of the future outside mm. of his ability to exploit the kids in his own perverse way. And I we'll hope come- that made sense. I apologize yeah. if it didn't. Yeah. And and we'll come to Freddy in a second, but I want to stick on Nancy mm. because she does have, I mean, she's the one who uh, sort of in a Nancy Drew kind of way, discovers yes. everything and and becomes very ingenious in the way that she deals with with Freddie. So how does she evolve? Because the Nancy we meet at the beginning of the film is definitely not the Nancy that we end up with. That's true. She does evolve. She is very in in that idealized way that we get with with final girls. She's very smart. She's she has a boyfriend. It's very she's but she's she. We see the first thing that that really I think Craven wants us to identify with her is that she's a loyal friend. Mm-hmm. She's kind of like, uh, almost like a sister to Tina. You can kind of see that in the relationship. Goody two-shoes perhaps, but definitely um, d- definitely full of that kind of idealism about, you know, being a teenager in 80s America, being very 
proper and very sweet and very kind-hearted then we go undergo this sort of tenacity this development mm. of her tenacity throughout the dream sequences especially as her friends get picked off and we see this determinism this um this kind of rock solid center to her that comes out and particularly towards the end of the film we really see her knowing that her smarts will save her knowing that it's all about that bravery that will save mm. her and being smart enough to figure out not only that he is pursuing her in the dreams and that the dreams most certainly do result in death but um that she can also bring things through the dream space which i think is such a brilliant sequence in the yes. film when she grabs his hat and brings it out and she's in the sleep clinic and mm. she's pulled it out and that she knows I've pulled this out into reality. This is something mm -hmm. absolutely incredible. So she's smart enough to realize this is how I can stop this person as opposed to denying it's happening or, oh, who think we're all crazy, which I, it's always interesting how many times the word crazy is thrown around this film mm -hmm. as well. Everyone is saying, no, you're, you're going crazy. It can't be possibly real. I she, think doesn't, I, she doesn't give in to that pressure. That's what I like about it. She sticks to it. She's firm and she's very solid. I think that's exactly the point also that she she never lets herself be convinced that what that her perception is not real and exactly. that it's not valid even you know when she she's so determined to prove it sometimes even at the expense of her own health like the way she she can she forces herself to stay awake for seven days at a time which is <laughs> absolutely insane yes. um i'm sorry absolutely not but insane. that is a huge physical toil but she does all these things essentially to prove to everyone around her that she's not, quote unquote, just crazy, that she's got a point to it, that it is real, that it has claimed her friends. And mm -hmm. and she pushes and, and kind of finds a lot of, I think, autonomy and personality and kind of, I think, the strongest parts of her personality come through as she's clashing against her parents, both, you know, the authority figure of her dad, which is both her dad and the police, and, and her mum and her guild. She never kind of bows down to them, which I found kind of very, so much more stronger in, in this rewatch that She's willing to put herself at physical risk, both through mm -hmm. sheer exhaustion and through her confrontations with Freddy, to prove the point and to rid other people and herself of this this kind of demon-esque villain. I think you're right. I mean, she is absolutely probably, um, up until this point, I would argue, probably the most feminist of, of the final girls as well, mm -hmm. insofar as she is not going to be there's no reasoning with her in, in or, or any attempt at gaslighting or anything like that none of that takes she knows what she's yeah. experienced she knows what she's seen mm -hmm. and she's not going to be assuaged or or in any way compromised in that and i think that that's brilliant there's no there's there's no doubting her and the film certainly mm. doesn't doubt her at any point either you know the representation of her is absolutely solid what i like about it is that and this is maybe controversial but I love the fact that she saves herself fully and completely. Yes. I love that about Nancy because yes. as much as I love earlier slashers where there's an intervention with, you know, whether it's a passing trucker or whether it's Dr. Loomis, that's absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. That's great. But I think, I think that the fact that Nancy figures out who the monster is, how to deal with him, and then also how to rob him of that power and saves herself i know we have those those three endings i'm sure we'll get to that as well <laughs> yeah. but um which kind of takes from it and, and adds to it in a different kind of way but she is so um so confident in her choices and so 
as I say, so feminist. It's it's all about mm. the idea of no, I can save myself. I don't need to be rescued by somebody else. I think there's something power empowering in that. Yeah, and I wonder kind of what element of that is is kind of because she wants to and part of it is because she's essentially forced into saving herself because no one is believing her or helping her. She, I think I really love yeah. the scene where she tasks people with doing specific things, especially Glenn, where she's like, I need you to do this at exactly this point. When I when I start thrashing around and I'm clearly in distress, you wake me up. Of course Glenn fails because Glenn yes. is Glenn, but <laughs> you know, she's she's always got a plan. And she's very, very specific. Mm-hmm. She's essentially directing everyone to make sure that she gets the job done. Um, and I wanted to kind of move on to how Nancy weaponizes dream logic, because one of the things that I think really, really affected me as a as a child, and I think even as I was rewatching it today, I was like, fuck, this film is great, mm-hmm. even by today's standards, because dreams, essentially, uh, dream logic in cinema... I think it's the most cinematic of possible like of possibilities that you can that you can offer a filmmaker because it opens up every single door visually narratively and because everyone dreams and I think there's a moment in the film as well where, when they're doing um tests on Nancy and she's mm. like can we just you know like cancel dreams I would like to cancel and subscribe from dreaming please <laughs> and and the doctor's like no 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 honey everybody needs to dream otherwise we'd go insane and and they have this little throwaway conversation with Nancy's mother where he where he's like we don't even know what dreams are we don't even understand them fully they're kind of this hocus pocus of the body and the mind like what happens in your dreams can affect you physically but we cannot predict them or control them or see them they're entirely an individual experience which I think makes this film so insidious in a way because it can tap into our individual relationships with our dreams and our nightmares specifically and what seeps into our subconscious and manifests in our dreams. I wanted kind of to to ask you, what do you make of the dream logic and how Elm Street uses it? Oh, wow. I mean, the dream logic in the film itself, I think, as I say, that was the the really amazing sequence, whether you're watching it for the first time or the hundredth mm. time, because it doesn't immediately flag up this is a dream in any of them, actually, when you discover, you know, when you're watching, you don't know at what point it's a dream, what point it's reality. It, it, Craven deliberately disguises those, those mm-hmm. sequences so that you never fully know that someone's fallen asleep until you get like I'm thinking of when Glenn has fallen asleep and let poor Nancy down. We then get that inter- the, the the chase is interrupted by the alarm clock and you're like, mm-hmm. okay, oh she was asleep. Oh, okay. So actually you get that abrupt ending to those dream sequences as opposed to those sort of dreamy beginnings. Mm-hmm. We we so we never fully realise we're in that space and that's what makes it work brilliantly as as you say, to open all those doors of possibility, to show things that we're just not expecting on screen. And then at the same time to enable enable the kind of the dream logic of it to show that Freddie can be everywhere. And that I mean, still to this day, one of the creepiest sequences in the film, it's such a cheap trick to reproduce, but it was so, so effective, was when Nancy's going to sleep and the kind of the wall behind her protrudes with Freddie's figure coming over it is um absolutely terrifying I think it's one of those moments that you just go that's the kind of stuff you would have been really you couldn't articulate why you're afraid of it when you were younger Mm -hmm. but that's the kind of thing you were terrified of that there Mm -hmm. was some sort of spectral invasion of your Mm -hmm. your private space and that that is to me 
a brilliant example of the dream logic. It it are, it is, makes sense to us as viewers. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have to be logical on the page in the actual script. I think it's mm-hmm. very coherent though, um, but it, it, it translates to all of us. All of us have terrifying ideas about what can be done to us, that we're not truly ever safe, that, mm-hmm. you know, we can be dragged across ceilings, we can be sucked into things. These are all very primal terrors mm-hmm. in some ways. And I think that this is uh, this is why Craven is so smart in that script, because it shows that dream space is something we, ne- we, we may learn to control our fear as we get older, but we still have those really basic terrors of uh of not really having full control of our bodies or indeed our minds we don't know what's always real in front mm. of us so the dream space of the film is absolutely amazing for that reason and i i completely agree with you because i think kind of um the the core point why it's still so impactful is that it never tries to verbally over explain the dream logic so like exactly. contrary to something like yes. inception right where we get <laughs> 45 minutes of exposition about how dreams work in this particular universe here it uses images to tell us when we're in a dream when we're not and what's terrifying and sometimes and the scary part about that image of freddy freddy's face kind of you know pulsing through the wall mm. is that it's it's the threat sometimes that we see as viewers but that the characters aren't aware of yet yes exactly we're going back to that Hitchcockian exactly yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely that is that is always the most exciting thing when we can see the terror the threat in the corner Mm -hmm. long before they do I I always think of Laurie Strode in that moment if you don't mind me saying just Mm -hmm. with Halloween when we see Michael's face slowly illuminate behind her is still one of the most magical moments in slasher cinema I think and also you know most most recently when in that amazing scene in Hereditary where we we, for I think for a full minute we just get you know, yes. we see Alex Wolf kind of wake up from a night terror and be sort of terrified and confused. And we he doesn't see her, but his mother is in the corner floating. Yeah. And we don't know what the fuck she's become or what she's going to do. And it is the most terrifying because also I remember seeing it at a press screening and then with an audience, you, you get the sense in the room of people clocking her at yeah. different paces. So it's kind of a never ending you know succession of little yelps of terror it's like oh shit <laughs> oh there she is yes it kind of ripples across the audience i do remember yeah. people a couple of people kind of nervously laughing and then suddenly oh and then it was just that like they register it and yeah it's it's quite fun that's one of the pleasures of seeing these films in in, in you know in large groups and large cinemas because different people clock it at slightly different times i i think with nightmare on elm street i think as you say and I'm never going to diss Christopher Nolan. I absolutely love him with all my being as a director. He's amazing. Um, spent too many years thinking about his films. But um, you're right. It, while while Inception visually narrativizes those different dream spaces and shows mm-hmm. you and tells you why it's important that the construct is the way it is, mm-hmm. that's the brilliance of Craven. Craven's like, it doesn't matter if you really even buy into the fact that there's a logic to this dream. Mm-hmm. The fact is, is that someone is killing you in the most in your mo- at your most vulnerable and mm-hmm. at undergoing a process that we don't fully understand the you know, the process of dreaming that's terrifying because we all have to do it well you know we yeah. will actually lose our grip on reality if we don't do that our brain is doing that memory dump that is so important mm-hmm. but at the same time within that is the key to our undoing in the case of this film i i think it's it's so smart to have the contours mm-hmm. of the dream space just slightly blurred in this film and then you kind of rigor it out that's why i always find them a bit especially the later elm street material i find it sometimes very very difficult to stomach because 
I can't always tell what's about to happen. They mm. are the more imaginative and more and more gruesome, must be said, of the sort of slashers of the mid nineteen eighties because they are they are abject. They are all about this sort of terror that is articulated way beyond blood and guts. It's all to do with transforming people or getting under people's skin or even, and I think it's beautifully foregrounded in this film, when Nancy answers the phone and Freddie's tongue is at the other end oh, of it. You're my yeah. boyfriend now, Nancy. I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. It's just like, oh, the fusion of his mouth with an object. I think, again, yeah. it's disgusting. And that's what's absolutely fantastic about this it's so it imaginative. is it is so bodily like yeah. it is it is i think kind of a a body horror in its own right because yes. it, it gives you that icky feeling even outside of the the gore it's those little elements like um freddie's hand appearing in between nancy's legs as she's taking a bath oh, yeah. um yeah. or his tongue coming in through the through the telephone like all of those things are just icky like you feel they feel gross even if we don't particularly see anything too gory um mm -hmm. it just kind of gets underneath your skin in that way and i think that's extremely rare i'm um, like very like only really really visually minded and creative directors manage to to create images like that that give you that physical feeling and i wanted to kind of get into into how nancy weaponizes that dream logic as we get into mm. into talking about freddy because obviously he lives in the dream world and he can penetrate the the real world the physical world um we never really know how or why but that doesn't really matter you know we go with it we're in the story now mm. but nancy kind of figures out how to weaponize that in between space so what do you think about kind of her her approach to to confronting and tackling freddy as a as a dream villain well, I think it's crucial that she learns it in stages. So, I mean, as mm. we would hope, she learns it through the idea of being able to uh, understand that there's a different sense of logic, a different sense of geography going mm -hmm. on in the dream world, where his layer is versus how she can uncover things, secrets from the past within her own house. This also mm -hmm. happens as well in the dream space. She uncovers all this material slowly. The fact that she can pull him, pull objects through into reality is that crucial defining moment because now she realizes there is some way I can make him vulnerable mm -hmm. to um to to be able to fight back because in the dream world she, while she does try and fight back and gives chase on numerous occasions she also knows how to wake herself up and that's a really yes. crucial moment there's a great scene in the film that I particularly love when she um realizes that she can wake herself up from the dream world as well mm -hmm. so Freddie has her cornered in the boiler room and she uh, realizes that she she can't really escape and he's about to attack her so what she does is she thrusts her arm onto the uh, into a boiling steaming pipe and the pain of this wakes her up so she understands that she at some point actually can control and get out of these kind of awful um experiences whereby he would otherwise kill her it's a really really great scene in the film as well because she's in the classroom she's surrounded by other teenagers and she realizes that while they all think she may have necessarily had an episode and she's going she's losing her mind and to the grief of, of losing Tina what's really really interesting in this is that she's still having flashes and scenes and ideas that are horrible images again that body bag image comes back to mind doesn't mm -hmm. it I mean I know this is just before that's the beginning of that sequence but the idea is is that she's haunted by this idea of what he has done and how she must fix it so she's always mm -hmm. tr troubleshooting it she's always problem solving this issue the logic of it of course being that once she figures out that she can has some element of control 
this is something then she exploits, of course, to the fullest potential. She goes and mm-hmm. she reads her booby trap manuals, which I still think, yeah, go for a girl in your class. <laughs> you know, she's, I just love it. I love the impetus of it. She's not going to be a victim. Love mm-hmm. that about her. Um, and then the fact that she realizes I can hurt him, at least temporarily. But she also discovers exactly what's fueling him, which is her terror. Mm-hmm. So fighting back really is so important, not only on a you know, dramatic level, not only in terms of um, not refusing to be a victim, but also realizing that terror is a form of power to people mm-hmm. who oppress others. So mm-hmm. this is something very crucial in the film. So let's really talk about Freddie because we've we've kind sure. of talked a little bit about him, but let's get into him as a villain. Um, mm-hmm. Because as usually happens with the with the first installments of of franchises and properties that become so long running and so iconic. Um, they're always a little bit different in how they're established initially as to how they evolve. And we might talk a little bit about what Freddie became later on mm-hmm. in later installments. But how, who is Fred Krueger? Like, how is he introduced? How is he characterized as a villain? Because we meet him very, very early on in, in Tina's, in the first scene, you know, we essentially mm-hmm. get a little, a little getting ready with Freddie montage of... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> of him like putting on putting on his claw glove, you know, doing yep. putting on his hat, getting ready. Kind of who is he and how is he characterized as a villain? Well, I mean, as you say, we're getting ready with Freddy in that opening <laughs> sequence. I like that. That really works, you know. Um, but the idea of the, the, I mean, the terror of touch is so mm. crucial to this. I mean, that you see the talent, like the sharpness of the, uh, of the, you know, the knife, fingernails, the glove, etc. So we get this from the beginning, knowing this is our villain. He's got the cackly, wonderful sort of laugh that you only get from Robert Ungland. And um, we get this idea that, you know, he is terrifying from early on, but we don't, we don't immediately see him then afterwards for maybe a few minutes because we're, we're sussing out Tina's kind of dream space and all the rest of it. But when he's introduced, we don't initially get that introduction of why he's doing what he's doing. We have to piece mm-hmm. that part together as well throughout the story. When we're eventually told who he is, it all starts to make great sense. We're told essentially that he was a filthy child murderer, to quote mm-hmm. Nancy's mom. And that, um, you know, he is... He was the one who was essentially terrorizing the parents of Elm Street by abusing or you know, killing their kids. Um, and that he becomes this sort of boogeyman, this everyday boogeyman that you you get a lot in 1980s culture. The idea of the children being targeted. This is always the reason why censorship is also prevailing in the 1980s we must protect the children but sometimes it's 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 used as an excuse to say that we are so what we find is that the parents of elm street essentially while trying to protect their children from this child murderer obviously Mm -hmm. the fact that they also in some ways never fully honest with their kids either this also Mm -hmm. leaves them open to that vulnerability so freddie is the boogeyman in so many ways and is certainly transformed later in the series through multiple sort of incarnations but in this he is a very he's a very frightening human sort of killer who is then made terrifyingly supernatural because he functions beyond death that's what's terrifying about him the parents mm-hmm. of Anne street are powerless to stop this and their repression of him or their their choosing not to even acknowledge him anymore because of their complicity in the crime makes him all the more terrifying because the children are no longer believed what i really think is so interesting about freddie as a villain is that the reason why he 
gets off is is his technicality which we hear about all the time a legal technicality mm-hmm. so it's again very human very everyday pedestrian ordinary in fact but then that the parents take retribution and this is the transformative thing that makes him exist in the dream world i think that's absolutely brilliant because it shows that mm-hmm. actually sometimes by doing what you think is the right thing can actually really produce a terrifying wrong that is mm-hmm. continued through the film um I think Freddy is, 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 is frightening because he is, in so many ways in this film, the sexual bad touch is so emphasised, not mm-hmm. only through the nails and all the rest. But again, that I, I still find that shot quite, I say quite inappropriate. It just makes me so uncomfortable, that shot where the claw is coming up in the bath. Mm-hmm. I just find that so uncomfortable because it's... Um, I suppose, again, it's vulnerability, isn't it? It's that idea of... yeah. Sexual vulnerability, sexual exploitation. I just, I, and I, I think the film is deliberately trying to make you feel that uncomfortable about that shot. And- I think, I think there are also kind of creative ways that Craven found around explicitly stating that Freddie was a, um, was a child molester. And I read kind of he was, very, he went on the record kind of saying that that was originally the plan, but he didn't want to, and they changed it to child murderer. But I think those shots really emphasize this very uh, leery aspect to, yes to freddie yep. as well you know and he really specifically only does it with tina and nancy like he doesn't do that with the with the boys with the guys no, no. and and i think that's very it's essentially the giving this to quote wes craven this dirty old man um yeah. access to the most intimate protected spaces of these mm-hmm. young girls that's what's so terrifying because they're under their parents roof and they still cannot be protected they are in their beds under their duvets they're in the hot bubble bath and they cannot be protected and yeah. no matter how much uh, you know when nancy is struggling with him in the bath and kind of this beautiful sh- scene where she kind of disappears into this pool um yes, in her yeah. bath and her mom is trying to force through the door and she can't so all these things this extremes that they went to to protect the children and i think it's really interesting to put in the concept of kind of how this idea of protecting the children which is such a a, a natural impulse of any anyone who who is a parent or even anyone who isn't a parent you know if i see a child mm-hmm. being hurt on the street i'm 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 going to try to help them even though i didn't hurt them but i think it's also very much uh, weaponized by politicians and mm-hmm. and a key a key kind of element that surrounds a lot of moral panics, right? Especially yes. around um, anyone abducting or or hurting children. And I think this really visualizes this and makes it completely inescapable and really, really gross because without actually delving into that subject, we're seeing the the kind of the nightmarish version of it that I imagine Nancy's parents and all those parents that were in that group that killed Freddie were imagining you know when he got off on a technicality they were essentially betrayed by the justice system that supposedly is there to protect them and their children it's a thing of like how what are we supposed to do when we're living in this beautiful suburban Americana and the structures that we that are supposed to protect us are not protecting us what are that, we going to do? And by structures, I mean the police, the home, parenting, the schools, like all of these places are infiltrated by Freddie. There's nowhere that's safe. And this like creepy, leery aspect of him, you know, with the tongue and the claw mm-hmm, and the, yeah. the kind of the sexualized stuff here. It's the danger here 
it, it kind of like oscillates between the kids are shown having sex. Well, no, it's shown, but it is implied. And, you know, they spend the night together. Everybody knows that they're in relationships with each other. Like it's presumed that they're having sex. But again, it's this kind of weird, dangerous, dirty old man. That's the actual sexual menace here. And even if he is destroyed, the sexual menace is not destroyed, which I imagine is kind of very terrifying for the adults in the film. Yeah, I think, I mean, everything you've said there, I absolutely agree with. I mean, one of the things that really stands out with this in terms of the adult world versus the the, the world of the teenagers mm. in this is that when you get to... Um, when you think about the backdrop of this film, I mean, uh, Craven was had written several drafts of it, but one one in particular when it was around the McMartin preschool trial mm-hmm. in the early nineteen eighties, which was about these children who had basically said they were being abused by the the people in their um in the in the care facility, mm-hmm. uh, in their daycare facility. What I think is interesting is that while the, this goes on as a trial and proves to be unfounded later in the decade, what it does is it taps into this really, really interesting nerve center in early 1980s discourse, which is mm-hmm. that parents are going to work. Both parents are going to work. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes they have to for financial reasons, mm-hmm. putting the kids in daycare away from their mom and dad. And they are now vulnerable to whatever other adults are in the place and space. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting because we don't fully trust the motivations of other adults. However, statistically and in reality most people are more vulnerable in their home than they are in other spaces like schools or indeed daycare centers or anything like that you're more likely to die at the hands of someone you know than someone you don't or mm-hmm. in a place that you're familiar with than a place you're not familiar with so we see that this is the film is playing with these expectations of you should be at home you should be in your bed you could be you, you should be somewhere safe but actually this is where you're most vulnerable to target and attack the fact as well as looking at that sexual abuse narrative throughout mm-hmm. the film and those images is that again those forms of abuse usually are perpetuated within familiar close groups not by strangers so i'm not saying it doesn't happen at all but i'm saying that it is more informed by familial and close contact within communities rather mm-hmm. than necessarily random strangers so we do get this idea that intimate spaces are terrifying spaces in this film and there's nowhere more terrifyingly close than the idea of having someone who can infiltrate those 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 spaces in mm-hmm. such a horrific way i mean yeah the the close contact is the situation with with freddie and as you say the darting tongue and the, the 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 knives and all the rest of it it's all there to kind of remind us that um not all adults necessarily are there to protect to protect yes. you you know, the young are not to trust everyone they meet i mean slashers are by their nature usually a devoid of parents or parents uh-huh. are the cause of some sort of misery that is brought down through the ages some sin that's been committed that then is taken out on the body of teenagers or on the minds of a group of teenagers so you never fully trust a parent i never do when i'm watching a slasher film anyway absolutely not <laughs> continuing on freddie there's yes. there's something as well that kind of sets him apart from the other villains of his generation let's say that's you know so i'm thinking of yeah, like leatherface sure. michael myers jason Sadly, Pamela is not in that realm because she only got to be in one and a half movies. But mm-hmm. they're all kind of, ex- they became extremely iconic and, and still are and are still very much the focuses and the connective tissues of their franchises. Mm-hmm. But there is something different about Freddy. The the thing when I was kind of rewatching it for this, I'm thinking, I mean, these, these are very obvious statements. You know, Freddy, Freddy talks. 
Mm-hmm. Freddie is a sassy motherfucker. Uh, mm-hmm. Freddie taunts his victims. Freddie is leery and and kind of slow. He's kind of like a cat in the way that he moves. Sometimes he can pick and choose when he deploys his powers, when he when he runs, when he's just sort of sort of nudging his way towards the victim to extend their fear. And and the design of him is is fascinating as well because while all of these other guys are wearing masks that cover mm-hmm. them up so freddy is actually you know he does have a outfit but you i was thinking like you could argue that actually the his injuries his burns mm-hmm. actually reveal his true horrific nature as opposed to masking it so what do you think about the the, the visual look of freddy and and england's performance so I think the look of him is is fascinating. As you say, there is no mask in this case. The skin acts as its own sort of horrific kind of announcement of Freddy. I mean, uh, what's quite, I love the fact that it looks like melted pizza and the, the pizza cheese. That's what the, the kind of design was taken from. So I love that idea of that. There's, it's almost like something is trying to burst out underneath. There's something really horrifying about that. Um, the look, I think in some ways is, is all about that performance. It's all about that, the way that Ungland holds himself, the way that the sh- one shoulder is heavier than the other or kind of lower than the other so that it shows and indicates the glove and the movement of the glove. I think that there's um, a really interesting design with that jumper, again, having the red and green so close mm. together. They're the two most difficult colours to look at side by side. So it's so interesting that you're going to getting these all these kind of flashpoints of disturbance. It's disturbance. It's disturbing to your eyes. It's disturbing to your mind to keep your eyes on him for so long. He intrudes in so many ways visually. Um, and the skin makes it very difficult to look at his face. It is hard to look at his face for long periods of time. The, the makeup is that effective. Um, but it really wouldn't work if you didn't have the performance by under, underneath it. You just, it just wouldn't work because he is so smart in terms of the way he reacts to the kids that he's tormenting, the way that he pursues them, the physicality of, as you say, he's slow, but he's he's very menacing. The way he holds his body is very, very menacing. Um, mm. The way that he lunges at them at times is incredibly, um, it, 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 it does give me that, that mind of sort of, someone who's really enjoying their work <laughs> someone who really almost can't can't wait to kind of kill someone we don't get that as much with um i think michael myers is more machine like in many respects mm-hmm. it's methodological um i think that you with others with other slashers it depends on their modus operandi you know if they have a particular knife or whatever chainsaw but um his is the most personal his is the most personal of weapons with that taloned claw there's something very, very personal about that. There's something very invasive about that. And I think, again, using that to show off its kind of terror, the terror of that touch, that the horror of that touch is so it's so based on the idea of actually selling it through performance. And that's mm-hmm. that's just a testament to how good an actor he is. But again, I have yeah. to say, I love his cackles. I absolutely, I love the kind of mordant one-liners. I mean, mm-hmm. other franchises have tried it, but, you know, really, Freddie is the, is the daddy-o of that, that kind of cackling <laughs> one-liner. He really, really is. I think it's because it's smart, but it's also, it's horrifying. It's horrifying to laugh at those moments because... The, you know that there's an inevitable grossness about to occur mm-hmm. on screen as well. So it's kind of 
bringing the audience in two different directions at the same time. You're laughing at something, but it's really, really gross. So it's, yeah. it's, it's quite a wonderful. And it's also kind of the, the perverted aspect of giving this child murderer a voice and a sense mm -hmm. of humor. It's the fact that he kind of knows that he cannot be killed again, in a way. Yeah, he can get away with it. Yeah, yeah, he's beyond, you know, physical justice in, in yeah. so many ways. So, like, he's so taunting and it is the most it is the most disgusting feeling to be mm -hmm. you know to hear this child molester child murderer be so openly unabashedly leery and gross and and kind of making his little slapstick jokes mm -hmm. it's kind of amazing and so bold and i think it really really feeds into why freddie is such a um has kind of become one of these iconic kill villains and killers but also makes him completely different because he so enjoys the murdering you oh, know whether yes. you think there's like a compulsive element in both Leatherface and, and Michael Myers and Jason you know in fact I think in our episode um, Isora and I really argued that Leatherface is just really overwhelmed and stressed about people being in his house yes but <laughs> yeah, there's, definitely there's definitely something to that for sure yeah and, and you know and Myers and Jason are kind of these these faceless killing machines that other people try to explain but no explanation really is sufficient and we don't know really hear them speak really but here freddy is like holy shit like if you gave him a sitcom he would be so <laughs> up for that so and i think there's something really really perverse about someone who is so unapologetic about their own evilness yes exactly he has no com there's no for the, all the interiority we get of this character, that when he speaks to us, he cracks mm. jokes. He he makes the, the the punchline of the kill is is always something that's just a little bit sick, but also at the same time, it is quite smart. It's, you know, smart arse that you get from the kind of nineteen eighties comedy. So there definitely is that fusion going on there. But what I really like is that he enjoys his work, whereas someone there is the compulsion to kill in other films might be as you say because of the stress that Leatherface may feel or indeed mm. that these these damn kids have come to Camp Crystal Lake and so therefore of course Jason's going to do what he needs to do or indeed Mrs. Voorhees um, you know there's revenge is one is usually an excuse but in the case of Nightmare on Elm Street revenge mm. is really on the beginning of the narrative after that it's that you get the sense that he just has a really good taste for it and and that mm. he, no he, as you say he's beyond he's beyond any sort of uh means of being stopped he's beyond that entirely you know i mean if he can if he can take pleasure from it that's the way he'll he'll do it so i i don't feel that there's um I feel that Elm Street in some ways feels very, very different because sometimes bad people happen and bad people mm -hmm. are out there and they, they enjoy what they do. You know, um, and also, you know, the the other difference is that um, Freddie is not is not physically threatening in the same way as the other ones are, because uh, Robert Englund is quite a lot of physically a smaller guy than yes. say yeah. um, Jason or, or or Michael or or Leatherface. Like he's not physically imposing. He can't just kind of you know lift you up with one hand and smack <laughs> you against the wall. It, his powers and the danger of him lies in something else. And obviously, there's his um, his glove which is yeah. probably one of the greatest props in horror movie history and, and one of the kind of greatest costume design decisions which is so perverse and and at the same time so 
cinematic and the way that it's so easily kind of creates even a sound that is so distressing Mm -hmm. and disturbing if he scratches it against any surface any wall it kind of yeah it really is nails on chalk on chalkboard isn't it it's really nails on the blackboard it gets you every part of the back of your neck just oh absolutely clenching it's so it's so disturbing but all of the things about him are designed in such a way that are so disturbing to us visually Mm -hmm. aesthetically in terms of the sound design in terms of where he lit where he resides i should say you know the boiler room the hot sticky hellish sweaty boiler room Mm -hmm. that again is not a is not a space for really anyone to occupy so you can also see as well there is an, an argument here about um the way that certain slasher villains are posited as members of cast off parts of the community mm-hmm. people who are where they're working in um jobs that other that that regular sort of middle-class americans wouldn't like to have i.e the janitor or mm-hmm. working as a cook in the camp uh, you know in the uh, in in, in in Friday the 13th or you know the, the the boogeyman the horrible story that's told about the the neighborhood that couldn't possibly be real but essentially is when he comes back to to stop the kids so there are these this this um these cast off members of community of the community that are transformed into horrifying characters and done mm-hmm. so in such a way to kind of morally instruct the students uh, instruct the kids you know be good do as you're told and you won't end up in a situation where you're coming into contact with these kinds of killers. I love the fact that Freddie is seen in his place of work in terms of the, the boiler work, <laughs> yes, as yes. opposed to there's there's the old Kruger house. You know, we actually, yes. no, let's do it with work. Let's do it through that idea of he inhabits, he's the invisible person that you never pay attention to who's doing the maintenance in the building. That's mm. who Freddie is. And that's the point. They're unknowable. They're invisible within the community in that sense. And that's what makes them horrifying. I know. You're absolutely right. And and there's also this element of kind of um maybe it's because I've been I rewatched the X Files oh, a lot brilliant. most of the X Files very Excellent. recently. But it really reminded me of Tombs as well. And oh, that yeah. as I was watching him in, in his place of work in the boiler room, I kept thinking, where does Freddie sleep? Does Freddie sleep? You know, does he make yeah. a little nest for himself? Um and if so, I I kinda I don't want to see it because it's gonna be extremely gross and weird. You know, where does does Freddie have a, a vanity uh space where he gets ready, he puts on his hat, makes sure it's all it's all primped up. It's all great. Yeah. Um, especially because of... Getting yes, exactly. Make it happen. Make it happen. <laughs> and, and I want to kind of uh, uh, get into the ending or the three endings, yeah. as you say. Sure. <laughs> what yes. do you um, what do you make about about them and kind of how they're deployed? And do they do they kind of do that thing where they try to close the story, but actually leaving it very open for um, for sequels? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think it, it works together. I mean, really, there's two uh, two narrative obvious endings to the film. Mm-hmm. The third one is sort of a, a, a joke where you could just have it end with the death of Marge. If you're thinking about it's a revenge narrative, she has the glove when Marge kind of dies and then Freddie is eventually dissipated. You know, uh, Nancy basically bests him by saying, uh, you're nothing, Kruger, you're shit, and then mm-hmm. drains him of that power. That's a great moment. The effect hasn't aged particularly well, but that's that's okay. It's a really, really important moment in terms of, again, knowing that you have choices as the final girl, as you are following her in her footsteps. Nancy here, you you get this idea that, you know, empowerment is everything. Knowing that you don't need to be saved, you can save yourself, you can stand up to this. So I love that about that ending because it's empowering 
However, mm. we do need that reunification, I guess. We do need to know that people can be okay, that it's a dream. So we get that kind of nonsensical, but I still enjoy it moment where she walks out onto the porch with her mom mm-hmm. and there is, you know, Glenn and Rod and Tina in, you know, Glenn's car. Of course, it's a convertible and she's off <laughs> to school. So she's restored back, we think, to that earlier version of Nancy that we saw all bright eyed and, and, and full of life. Um, but it's, of course, we are also flagged up that this is also slightly too surreal. It's too much like what David Lynch would eventually do so mm-hmm. well. The beginning of Blue Velvet, you know, so much uh, white picket fence. It's overly exposed in the whiteness of the scene. So we get this sense of, oh, it's it's kind of overdone. There's almost to the point of we know there's something not right in this moment. Mm-hmm. And then when she gets into the car and the top comes up and it's all Freddie stripes, we know, oh, it's another it's another kind of fake out. And then I think the only moment in this that lets it slightly down, because I'm up to, I'm with it up to that point, is when poor Marge gets sucked through the door and you can so tell that it's not uh, anything more than a blow-up doll. I think that's the moment where you kind of go, oh dear, that effect just didn't quite work at the end. However, <laughs> we end on the kids and that's a really lovely moment where the kids with the skipping rope Mm-hmm. And the one, two, Freddy's coming for you. And that's great because we get this idea of, in a way, it doesn't really matter that we have a conclusion or not. It's mm-hmm. in the community. It's a myth that will be trans, you know, will literally be shared. This idea of there was this guy who once killed kids, who had knives for fingers, who did these terrible things. And it will go through all the kids' playgrounds and the recirculation of stories. That's mm-hmm. how this film works so well. And of course, it gives us the the door it opens the door to all those sequels for better or worse that to come that are to come and what do you think of uh i know aside from the 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 thematic reading of it like does it mean that nancy actually doesn't succeed in banishing freddie or is the banishment of freddie temporary if we or you know is she even if she did manage to overpower him by taking away you know and i kind of love the the slight um, millennial energy of her declaring that she takes away every ounce of energy that she ever gave him yes um yes does this mean that you know what obviously with hindsight it's a bit weird talking about it but if we look at it just as a standalone thing kind of does Mm. it mean that essentially she's still going to be haunted by at least the memory and the trauma of what she went through tackling Freddy Krueger, if not the actual Freddy with the powers that he had over her before. I kind of like to read it as thus. You may Mm. disagree with me, Anna, and if you Mm. do, that's grand, tell me so. I like to think of it as that she did best Freddy. Mm -hmm. However, in the period between when she drains him of the power and then Mm -hmm. the very next scene where it's all white and overexposed, Mm -hmm. that is the moment. The white sequence at the end is actually a dream. So she's constantly fighting Freddy in her Mm -hmm. dream, but it's not, 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 uh, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that it's not the dream space that he occupies, but that she's always afraid now that he'll come back. I like that. That makes sense. I, yeah, that to me, I really like it, that. It, it, it balances the two quite nicely. And yet, of course, it opens it to the sequels as well. Yeah. So she has bested him, but she's traumatized by it. And yeah. therefore, she is constantly fearing that when she gets her old life back or dreams that she wants to get her life or mm-hmm. her old life back with her family and friends, mm-hmm. that he's always going to pop up and destroy that. 
of course yeah Yeah. that makes sense because you know it's only in in movie logic that you can Mm -hmm. survive an ordeal like this and not be scarred by it and i think this um really sets that up like that that whitewashed dream sequence at the end is a fantasy it also really really fits into kind of the the carry fake out ending where we see that same kind of very washed out dream sequence and then it's it's um pierced through by Carrie's hand popping up at the end from her grave. And and of course there we get like a, a little shot of of the of the last girl standing kind of actually being in a hospital. So there is an element there of of real life trauma that we know she's dealing with actively. Mm-hmm. Um and I really like that reading. I, I agree with you. I prefer that reading as well. I think that way you get to have your cake and eat it as well, you see, which is always kind of nice in slasher rooms. You want to have your cake and eat it. You want to signal there's more fun to come. And yet, absolutely, this has had an effect. This is the, the, that, but we want our final girl to survive and to, to win. And this is what I love about this film, that she does do mm. that, even though there are obviously there are consequences to that. And that's why the ending has to be a dream. She can't just get Glenn back. She can't just... She can't just get her mom back, mm. you know. So it and, signals all that. And as we as we start wrapping up, and I don't really want to talk mm. too much about the 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 sequels, but we'd be remiss not to talk about what becomes of Nightmare on Elm Street as a franchise. Can you briefly what do you think about the way that the franchise evolved and the way that Freddy evolved? I I have to say. I, I've always struggled with the sequels of this. Now, I, I actually quite like New Nightmare. Mm, and I think same. New Nightmare is a lovely bridge between the two. The in-between years, so the in-between I- installments, I have to say I have largely not been a huge fan of because in some respects they are more gory, they're more fantastical, mm. more phantasmagoric, all of that. But to me, it was always about how much more depraved can you make Freddy? I mean, how much more mm-hmm. gross can you make? And there are funny moments, sure. There are, I mean, Nightmare on Street 3, I think, is, is actually great fun, Dream Warriors in some mm-hmm. respects. But but I have to say in the main, it, it, it did become very uninteresting to me. I mm-hmm. did find that it was just, it was continuation, sometimes just for the sake of continuation. Uh, but I love New Nightmare. Mm-hmm. I thought New Nightmare was genuinely quite quite smart. And of course, without New Nightmare, we wouldn't have Scream and lots and lots of, of other course. postmodern horrors to come. So yeah. it, it's given us quite a lot in this world. Um, and I like the fact it's smart. I like the fact it's written very well. I like the mm-hmm. fact that it knows what it's doing. It's 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 clever. So it, I like to think of it as 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 the proper Nightmare on Elm the con- proper conclusion to Nightmare mm-hmm. on Elm Street. That's that's good enough for me. So the legacy is yeah, it's kind of mixed in, in my honest opinion. Yeah, I I have a re- I really like um the the sequel Freddy's Revenge just because I think of it as a standalone Nightmare on oh, Elm okay. Street because I really like it as a queer horror as well and I think it mm-hmm. kind of does something really interesting by focusing on a male lead character played by Mark Patton. So True. I think kind of as a again I think it's a film that's kind of gay in in meaning and in readings as uh, kind of the the people who've given given it those readings have grown up and have evolved and like it's got a real cult it's following got a huge cult following yeah. yeah huge cult following and i think it is genuinely interesting in the realm of horror because it does essentially the final girl thing but with a teenage boy so i yes, think that's yes. really fascinating and dream warriors i have a really soft spot for i really love mm-hmm. that one because i think it really really tries to go much deeper into the dreamy aspects of it 
it, the dream logic, the dreamscape, yeah. kind of the possibilities, how to weaponize and it. Makes it, it also has one of the grossest parts, though, as well. I mean, yeah. one that just, can, I mean, just the puppet master vein thing. Oh, dear <laughs> God. I, I was too young when I got exposed to that image. I'm, I've just yeah it, it just didn't work that was really absolutely yeah. horrifying to me and so new nightmare it. i'm with you i love new nightmare i <laughs> i love the bridge that it creates between um between well 80s horror and scream and obviously west craven's return to the nightmare on elm street uh franchise as well and it yeah. was billed as west craven's new nightmare i do yeah. also love because i have a, such a soft spot for movies about movies yes me too <laughs> the way that it kind of really played around with what were now iconic parts by actors who were not you know that big when they got cast in those roles mm-hmm. and i think robert england is such a funny character actor so like if he gets to play himself and if he gets to play freddy krueger it's just it's just a joke waiting to happen i really really enjoy it I, I love the fact as well that I have to say, because um, I know he's no longer with us, but mm. Wes Craven is not so great playing himself. <laughs> he's, no. he's obviously not comfortable in front of the camera. Bless but him. I love the fact that he tried. I love the fact that he wrote himself as a character. I thought that was that was really nice. I liked that touch. I love the fact that it felt like there was something unbound about Freddy. Mm. There was something that was so, you know, that they created this monster that has now escaped into the theatre. In some respects, it's obviously mm-hmm. so William Castle. And on another way, it's so, it shows off the scholarly underpinning of Craven and his scripts that they were actually really smart pieces of writing as well. I, I really enjoyed that film, I have to say. Um, it was a lot better than I than I had anticipated when it came out. So, so that was a real joy to find. So I like to think of it as Nightmare on Elm Street, and then I can appreciate the middle ones in the middle. But mm. for me, it ends then with New Nightmare, quite quite satisfyingly. I have to say. <laughs> and and kind of Brithy, have you seen the remakes? Have what do I do, have? Yeah, yeah. What do you I think? watched the twenty ten one. Um, yeah, yeah. I. Okay, I I didn't <laughs> like it, and I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't appreciate that they overexplained what connected all the kids together. I oh. need to know that. that Always was... do that in remakes. Why is that the go to with remakes? Yeah, I I want I want there to be enough sort of hint of that that we people like you and I can sit down and have a chat and hypothesize mm-hmm. and think and color in that world instead. So they overexplained it. Um, I definitely got frustrated with the um the special effects in it i think it, it stated quite quite badly i have mm. to say because even that moment that we talked about earlier with freddie in the wall which is mm-hmm. a really cheap special effect in the original yeah they digitized it in the new one and it looked rubbish and i was like that's not scary that looks ridiculous you know it was it, it, it didn't it didn't hint at anything it just showed you stuff it was very um overt yeah the whole way through it didn't work for me, I have to say. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> I uh, I kind of wrote that eviscerating piece on it at the time. So what comes back to me is that, no, it was very, very bad. I do remember my other half was actually had laser eye surgery the day before I watched it on at home when I was working on it. And he, he did come out to me and go, can you please turn down whatever that massive amount of screaming is? <laughs> so, um, so it was more disturbing that it was disturbing him post laser eye surgery than it was actually as a film. Uh, it just, I just thought, you know, you, um, no, no. it just logically did not work. I, I don't think. And that's yeah. why there's been no other sequels, thank God. 
and I th- and I think it also kind of suffers from a lot of the things that the the late two thousands uh, wave of remakes that were kind of both wanting to be eighties horror, but also really influenced by the stylistic uh, decisions of kind of earlier mid two thousands horror films. Absolutely, it kind of sits the there color in the middle. Palace. Yeah. Oh my god! Like yeah. there, there is just this. It's the same color palette across. I would say like hundreds of films and I don't quite understand why kind of with the with the new technology and with everything that's available and especially with the premise which is essentially dreams you know the films that stick with us are especially the ones that kind of delve with supernatural elements and with dreamscapes you can make them extremely bombastic you can play around with color so much you don't have to make everything kind of hyper saturated green and and mustards like green leave them mustards and browns it was just yeah. the look of everything that came out pretty much between well in those kind of remake films anyway sort of between 2006 and like 2015 i just remember all those colors and i was like oh for god's sake you know i mean everything all the color covers look the same as the Mm. texas chainsaw massacre color palette but not as interesting as anyway as the original texas chainsaw massacre although although i will i will shout out jackie earl healy healy's performance because i think he was really really well cast um because it kind of went down that that route of you know a slimy small guy who yeah. who would be like a creep in the neighborhood as opposed to a physically imposing dangerous killer. I will say this when I saw the trailer for before I saw the film mm-hmm. and they had included a sequence with him as Freddy before being burned to death. Yeah. Or, so, and the kids are there in this kind of daycare space. I did kind of think to myself, okay, that's quite disturbing. Maybe they'll do something quite interesting with it. But yeah. I think there's a weight of a whole franchise behind this. There's expectations. And then at the same time, you have all that dream space capacity that they really did so well through practical effects in the 1980s mm-hmm. that I do feel the digital kind of the digital terrain at that point had very had not fully caught up and i don't think it really has still caught up fully with the impression and the horror of those practical effects because mm-hmm. for me 80s cinema still has a tactility that really can disgust in a way that contemporary horror does not for me yeah. I, I, the digital I, there's something in the human eye or the human brain that you can pick up when it's not real and and there's something so horrifying in those practical effects that I remember so well from the 80s and 90s that just make me go wow that that's quite confrontational that's why the Nightmare on Elm Street's work they go in that different horrifying transformation mm. of the body direction that you just don't get with um, contemporary films you can you can kind of turn that off in your mind's eye and and kind of to start wrapping up, I wanted to ask you kind of bit the the cultural legacy of this film because this was sure. a standalone film. You know, it's a small budget little horror that essentially you know it was called it's it was said that it was saved saved New Line Cinema, which was the the small independent studio that produced it. But then it's kind of spawned not just the sequels, not just the remake, not just the crossover of Freddy versus Jason and the comic book crossover of Freddy versus Jason versus Ash, um, and <laughs> <laughs> so and the, I have the, not treated myself to that yet i haven't i have not either and you know the freddy's nightmare series that you talked about but also i love the fact that there's so many documentaries about this film (laughs) and the franchise and the different people involved you know there's never sleep again there's nightmares in the makeup chair there's scream queen which which is all about mark Patton and and Mm -hmm. the querying of the of the sequel which i think is amazing it's an amazing 
amazing piece of documentary and how kind of he got the brunt of the bad reception of that film at that time. Yeah. And and also I Am Nancy, which I still haven't seen, but I think kind of poses this interesting question of why do we always remember and mythologize Freddy Krueger, but nobody culturally cares about Nancy um, mm. in in a way that's kind of quite different from, I guess, well, similar to other final girls, but different from, say, Laurie Strode. And, mm. and I was wondering kind of what do you think about how the the universe of Nightmare on Elm Street has kind of expanded over the decades into this, you know, into comic books, into series, into more films, into music, into documentaries, <laughs> video games. Yes. My God. I mean, that's one of the things that the sequels did very, very well, actually, is it kind mm. of hybridized and transplanted itself across numerous sort of uh, media outlets. I mean, even the, like, you've Zsa Gabor showing up to do a cameo on one level, and <laughs> Freddy's, you know, a talk show host. You then also have the Nintendo um, tie-in as well. So on one level, the films do these tie-ins that are quite interesting and are talking about contemporary, contemporary materials, contemporary material culture mm -hmm. i mean i'm definitely thinking of because the production was so quick a lot on a lot of the sequels they often had those they often had the release date before they had the script which is just bizarre when you think of it but what i think was quite interesting about that was it meant that they were always rapidly responding to what was going on in the culture and then you could also make sure that freddie's influence was uh commercially expanding as well i mean there mm -hmm. were freddie krueger pajamas weren't there there was uh in what i think it was in the never sleep again documentary because i loved the never sleep again documentary i must mm -hmm. say i thought it was brilliant and you didn't feel that four hours slip by it really was it really was one that went quick i might rewatch really it good. tonight yeah it's yeah such a treat. and i love the fact that it's all done in the sort of half an hour half an hour segments with mm -hmm. the exception of the first one which is a little longer so that you can literally go oh next up next half an hour nightmare on street five or whatever your film is that's mm -hmm. brilliant you know it was so well conceived of what i loved about that though was that wasn't there also freddy krueger sleeping tablets in japan oh my god shut up were there really yeah, I think, was, oh my I think it's God, in that that's documentary. Brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> which makes you kind of go, really? Oh, okay, wow. Um, oh, I love movie merch. It's so unhinged. And, but, but I love unofficial movie merch. That's yes. the best thing because yes. you just don't know what it's going to be crossed with. It's so, so interesting. Mm -hmm. But I mean... I, I have to say, Freddy was probably the most commercialized of the of of the uh, of the horror mm. icons of the eighties. I mean, I can't think of anyone who would make quite so quite the same impact. I know Michael Myers didn't. I mean, you had you know the, the outfit, sure, but mm -hmm. it didn't really have that that commercial impact. And I mean, again, with with Jason, I never really felt that you you saw as much of Jason in in the commercial sphere. Whereas Freddy, all you really needed was something like a stripy jumper and you know a, a talon glove. I mean, my brother dressed up as 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 Freddy on several Halloweens. You know, because again, you could easily construct the costume. So, yeah, I I think that it's. It, it was a very, very commercialized output for New Line. It's obviously New Line was the house that Freddie built in mm -hmm. every sense. And New Line becomes this huge, hugely important production house. However, I think that um, Freddie is one of those characters that he's such an important part of the zeitgeist of 1980s culture. Yes, he's consumerist. Yes, he's very much, you, you know, a, a part of that kind of horror of that moment of 
parents and teens and they're the disconnect between generations mm -hmm. but actually he's also incredibly savvy in terms of he's because of those quick commercial productions of the films it speaks to that time very very well mm -hmm. i mean one of the moments it's in a, in the film it's not, it might not even feel like an important moment but to me it's really crucial mm -hmm. in nightmare on elm street part two when he interrupts the pool party what does he say to the kids? He says, you're all my children now. Mm. It's all about that enslavement of those kids, economic enslavement, enslavement under what the irresponsibility of the parents, of the police, of the country, of the nation. Mm -hmm. It's all about the idea you have to deal with all the crap that the parents have not dealt with mm -hmm. or that the parents are going to inflict upon you. And that comes through then in fun ways as well with the commercialism and with the music. I mean, again, I'm never going to diss Doc and that was good. Dream Warriors, <laughs> you know, there's some notes they hit on that one, you know. So um, it's, I, I like the fact that it kind of went everywhere the way the merchandising of the late 1980s horror culture did, you know, and, mm. and Freddie is an icon of that. So maybe, maybe don't try the sleeping pills though. <laughs> you know? I mean, you'll come back from that one. Honestly, <laughs> you know? that sounds like I don't think they're going to be sleeping pills. I think they're going to be like mushroom or LSD pills because probably wouldn't yeah. that make the most sense narratively? But you know, then again, when does movie merch make narrative sense? Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> and so, thank you so much for your time and for your insight. Is there anything you wanted to say about a nightmare on Elm Street that we haven't covered in our conversation? No, not at all. No, it's been great actually. Amazing. Cool. So where can people find more of your work online? Uh, so at the moment, I am doing several projects online. But um, so I'm at Vampire Surica on Twitter, if you want to follow me or check out what I'm at. Uh, I'm currently doing some criticism for BBC. Uh, so on BBC Radio Manchester, uh, around 20 past four every Thursday, reviewing uh, new release films. And you can also find several books, work I've done, Clive Barker and postmodern vampires things like that you'll find all that information on my twitter or at manchester metropolitan university where i'm a senior lecturer in film oh, excellent thank you so much for for tackling for tackling freddie with me thank you for having me anna <laughs>